The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Savarmahan Valuvan. We spoke about his new book, The Clamour of Nationalism, Race and Nation in 21st Century Britain. Over the coming weeks and months, the show will of course be looking at the 2019 UK general election, the state of the Labour Party and how it is that Boris Johnson succeeded in achieving such a comprehensive victory over Labour and the Corbynite left. There's already an avalanche of commentary from across the political spectrum diagnosing the reasons for Labour's failure. Much of it's useful and insightful, some of it less so, but it seems to me that it might be best to take stock once we have a better understanding of just what happened on Thursday, December 12th. Although today's interview was recorded weeks before the election, Sivamahan's thesis that we are not living in an era of populism, but rather of reactionary nationalism, looks all the more relevant and plausible in the context of the electoral victory of Boris Johnson and an increasingly right-wing Conservative Party. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is... In the Red Corner, The Marxism of Jose Carlos Maria Tegui by Mike Gonzalez. The book is the first English-language biography of one of Latin America's most important, innovative and enduringly relevant Marxist thinkers. Despite his renown in Latin America, Maria Tegui's life and work are largely unknown to the English-speaking world. In this gripping political biography, the first written in English, Mike Gonzalez introduces readers to the inspiring life and thought of the Peruvian socialist. As one of the first modern thinkers to discuss what Marxism has to offer and to learn from the struggles of indigenous peoples, his ideas have an immediate relevance in the context of Standing Rock and other indigenous-led fights challenging pipelines across the world. Haymarket Books are currently running a holiday sale. Visit haymarketbooks.org to buy titles at a 50% discount. International customers have to pay postage costs from the US, but over the sale period this is still likely to be the cheapest way to buy Haymarket titles. Sivamahan Valuvan is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick. His research interests lie in racism and ethnicity, nationalism and cosmopolitanism, consumerism and cultural and post-colonial theory more broadly. He serves on the editorial board for the journals Citizenship Studies, Ethnic and Racial Studies, and Sociological Review, as well as serving on the Board of Directors for Common Word, a Manchester-based charity aimed at cultivating the talents and profile of creative writers from underrepresented backgrounds. So typically when political commentators are are talking about the current era that we're living through, the post-financial crisis era and you know, the era of Donald Trump and of, of Brexit, of Bolsonaro in Brazil and, and, and all these different figures and political events, it's usually framed in terms of populism and the language of polarisation. 
Whereas in your book, you seek to frame this moment more in terms of nationalism rather than this talk about populism, which obviously can entail a wide variety of political positions. It can be a populism of the left or the populism of, of the right, but instead you see nationalism as, as the correct framing. Could you explain why that is? Yes, I think that's a very apt question. I think you're entirely right to characterize the prevailing punditry on those terms. And I suppose that's precisely why I'm so frustrated by it. It has gained, a, ironically, a populist traction to see things as, as merely populism. And I suppose, like others have said, not least Aurelian Mondon and Winter, who I believe have a forthcoming book on this matter, but others as well, who are, there's a kind of cottage industry that's emerged around this matter of populism. But as they have said, and as I've argued in my own book, I think this is really rather misnomer because it denies the kind of qualifying factor that is shared by almost all these forces where they might indeed be significant. You've already mentioned Brazil, but I'm of course talking about Europe, but let's say Brazil, Hungary, United Kingdom, Sweden, Denmark, and whatnot. And that's of course that it resorts to fairly well understood nationalist frameworks, nationalist themes, nationalist motifs, nationalist nostrums. And in that sense, I find it odd that people want to opt out of nationalism and instead kind of dwell on the, the, the populist framework. And what I argue in the book, in fact, is that much of what they see as populism has so many family resemblances constitutively to what we understand to be nationalism, i.e. the naming of the people, this wronged majority who is simply, whose dignity is at stake and who have been kind of suffering the excess burden of the outside, of internal minorities, of an aloof kind of intelligentsia and so on. But that's how nationalism in general also tend to operate, where it has to kind of take a very pronounced investment in a sense of this innocent majority ethnically or, uh, construed along communitarian terms and crucially along majoritarian terms. And in that sense, I find it odd that we wouldn't just talk about it as nationalism and instead resort to certain kinds of populism. And I also think, you again, you intimated this already, I think it suggests a false equivalency between different populisms. I mean, as, uh, as someone who kind of considers myself part of the left, the obvious response is, if only that was the case, I don't see these left populisms, as, as others might describe it, as being so rampant and so prominent. And in fact, some of the left that have resurfaced, I don't think are populist and have actually quite mature, complex and kind of coalitional forces. But crucially and more dispiritingly, they're not even that popular. And hence, I don't know why they would want to do this kind of equivalency that we live in the populist age, and hence all these competing populists or populisms are suddenly front and center. It's only one populism that is front and center, and it's a normative nationalism. And crucially, uh, th there's another step to that that's important. These are not sudden, abrupt manifestations. They have a longer arc. They have a longer arc across 200 years, we can say, or rather they have a longer arc across 20 years. When I, you know, in the book I speak about how, in many senses, the core themes have been rehearsed by centuries across the early 2000s, but also the kind of the broader Thatcherite era of the 80s and early 90s. Mm. And I suppose something like the National Front or, or, or the National Rally, as it now is in, in, in France, is, yes. uh, yeah, as you say, it's, this is not simply a product of the post-financial crisis era. I mean, in terms of defining this era as, as, as a nationalist era, I mean, I suppose the position that might be put would be to say, okay, perhaps nationalism is dominant, 
But nonetheless, we see popular upsurges around people like Bernie Sanders and his, yeah. his previous presidential campaign and, and the current campaign and, and the, the general revival of the American left, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, things like Extinction Rebellion, Podemos and, and even Syriza, because I suppose, you know, a point that, that could be made as well, you know, the left hasn't got into government, but it, there is at least that one, that one case. And is there also a, a question of contingency here in, in, the, in the sense that somebody like you know, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't that far away from winning the last election. Bernie Sanders wasn't that far away from becoming the the Democratic nominee last time. And I wonder if there might be, because of those sort of, those counterfactuals maybe point to the fact that the dominance of the nationalist frame perhaps looks stronger than it is. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair question, actually. I, of course, as you know, address those themes are kind of recurring moments in the book. Perhaps the best way to address that is firstly to say, Many people have accounted for this reconsolidation of nationalism in a slightly economistic manner, where mm. it is the austerity or the, the great credit crunch of 2008 or even the kind of longer neoliberal project and the discontents that are finally finding some sort of expression. I, too, actually accept much of that reading. But what I also say, this is inadequate and we are not taking nationalism sufficiently seriously. And in other ways, there are other classes that are also contributing to the popularity of nationalism and so on and so forth. But if I am to just isolate the economic, yes, I think that kind of 30-year, 40-year stagnation is also releasing some other political possibilities. Mm. And that is certainly true. But I would see them as kind of counter-normative projects. They have no kind of established... They have no established political memory of the last 20 years, 30 years, which they can draw upon or which they can capitalize upon. Nationalism, on the other hand, I think is just consolidating what was already emergent. And I argue, in, I think, on the chapter on the left and on neoliberalism, that is, of course, in many ways, in, a, from a, in, in the British context, it is rehearsing or extending one part of the Thatcherite project. Mm. One part, part of the Thatcherite project, once it is, in fact, in some senses, detached or becomes undone from the the other kind of more prudent approach to the you know their their other commitments around capital or small business and so on. So in that way, yes, I personally can see economic stagnation, widening inequalities, the re-proletarianization of the lower middle class, perhaps all of that allowing for various leftist possibilities. I think that's why at the end of the book, the final chapter, I dwell at great length about what the Corbyn moment might in fact represent. Because in some ways, it's quite thrilling to be in Britain at the moment. And of course, it's a very embattled, beleaguered political formation. It's been, sabotage is perhaps too strong a word, but kind of serial attempts at delegitimating the project from within and also from without. So, but I do find, of course, yes, in Britain, it is perhaps the most advanced, surprisingly enough, I never thought I'd be able to say that, but it is no. in Britain that we, <laughs> yeah, we find the most interesting or and he's, you know, some kind of popular left project with a wider salience. I will just mitigate that by saying, yes, you've mentioned a few interesting comparable movements. But, you know, I write through Sweden. I've lived there. I spent some of my youth there and so on. I write about Germany, France, so on. And, you know, it's not really, they don't really have a comparable Corbynism, if mm, you like. Yeah. And if they are there, they're kind of inflated in, you know, they kind of come on certain ecosystems of fringe media or, you know, social media and maybe people like us or some kind of intelligentsia or whatnot. 
But yeah, it, it doesn't really have that wider carry yet. And I say that, this, you know, not out of a willful pessimism, but just because that's how I happen to read the present. Mm. And there's also, you talk about this in the book, there's also a much greater, it seems, flirtation with, with an anti-migrant politics yes. uh, that we see in the, in the work of somebody like Wolfgang Strake and, and um, on, on, on the German left and, and even the French left to, to an extent as Absolutely. well, right? Absolutely. No, no, I think the Mélenchon case is quite telling. I know he takes different positions at certain moments, but I think it is quite revealing that ultimately they also kind of embrace, maybe for opportunistic purpose, but maybe also out of convictions, a certain kind of submission or, or uh, appeal to nationalist themes. I think actually what's particularly telling is what's happened in Denmark of late, because um, we did see a center-left government or party, the Social Democrats, come into government for what I understand, they didn't actually extend their their own electoral gains that significantly, but they could somehow secure it and work themselves into a coalition government. But what was interesting with Mette Frederiksen is that she has been extraordinarily zealous in endorsing a series of very prominent kind of racial nationalist fault lines around the Muslim around the figure of the Muslim, rather, in very incendiary ways, really kind of cheap plays to the politics of integration, and also quite incendiary claims around how to deal with asylum seekers, refugees, and so on. And that is interesting. And I think I find that kind of left populism particularly dispiriting. Mm. And I fear that others are watching that kind of Denmark situation quite carefully. We also saw it in, in Germany, I think. There's been a splinter group, right? Mm, yeah. With Sarah Wagen, uh, Wagenknecht. She, too, and her kind of allies, and I think you're right to mention Wolfgang Strick, he's, he's, I think, formally endorsed that. Yeah, a kind of principle of consolidating the borders, acknowledging that immigration is in fact a problem and playing into all those themes that are, which I think are kind of the domain of the current nationalist right. Just going back to the way in which the current era is interpreted by commentators and specifically left commentators, I mean, do you think perhaps Part of the you know, framing this moment in terms of polarization and in terms of populism is, to some extent, just a sort of a, a wish fulfillment. You know, we sort of spent, yeah. you, you know, living through this miserable neoliberal era, there's this tremendous desire to break out into something else. And yeah. so I wonder if, you know, in the case of, of Brexit, for example, that that sort of inflects that desire to interpret Brexit as a, as a more fluid moment where it could be taken up for life purposes and this sort of flows into the Lexit position. Yeah. Although, I mean, it sort of feels that, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left have been on a, on a journey with that issue and are, are kind of shifting to a position where there is a greater recognition of, of the nature of the Brexit project, perhaps. No, I think that's really fair. I do think there's been some degree of maturation on that particular theme. Mm. But let us just take it in the first instance, I think you put it quite well, that kind of, you call it a reflex, I think, towards wishing to read it otherwise. And whilst I understand that impulse, and I think many of us share that, what we cannot negotiate on or what remains a position where we cannot allow for any compromise is that that, that project itself, the nationalist project, in this instance, the Brexit version of that, necessarily throws many people as disposable either in the form of free movement, either in the intensification of anti-immigration sentiment, but also policies, the call for bordering, as we, and as we've just seen, tragically, the call for bordering has a human death toll. And similarly, it's not merely about who th those who are kind of rendered expendable or disposable, but it's also about how other minorities who already live here 
then experience their social and political environment. Nevertheless, if any kind of attempt to rehabilitate the themes that come through something like Brexit or comparable nationalisms elsewhere, also therein rehabilitates its key themes, its key fault lines, its key meanings, which are, of course, in my opinion, of a highly racialized nature as attached to the project of the nation. And I think that's what frustrates so, so, so many of us. It's not, what is not frustrating is this idea of uh, a wish to say, yes, something is also available for the left. I think that's a perfectly welcome and understandable intuition. Hmm. But it's also that parallel inability but in, to interrogate everything else that is also happening and is in part and parcel of that project of that terrain that will need to be dispensed with. And it's that kind of, I don't know, it's that cautiousness. I think often, in all fairness, it's sometimes it is ideological conviction, alas. They don't seem to think it matters. And in that, that's where I guess some of my motivations for writing this book, and particularly the chapters on the left, uh, originate. I mean, so in, in terms of your conception of this era of, of nationalism, that we're living through. So you talk about how nationalism sort of inflects everything across the the ideological field, and you've already touched on um, uh, how it you know, inflects even even parts of of the left. If we take the other side of the Brexit debate, people who take a very sort of pro EU position, obviously it's usually articulated in being a very pro European uh, position, mm-hmm. as if those two things are are identical. And a lot of liberal pro-EU people um, would take issue with the idea that their ideology has been heavily inflected by nationalism as well. Could you explain why you do think it it, it makes sense to include uh, that kind of uh, liberal ideology within the nationalist uh, field? Okay, well, fantastic question. I think it might be helpful to cleave two different themes here. The book is only in part about Brexit, I suppose. Mm. And so, you know, if anything, I kind of underdetermined the question of the EU per se. And in some ways, I regret that. I would really like to make, if I was to rewrite the book, I would give that a little wider berth. So when I actually talk about liberal nationalisms, that is also an opportunity for me to talk about the centrality of Islamophobia to the contemporary political discourse and Mm. contemporary political common sense. And in the way in which liberalism and its as a kind of civilizational marker has been almost exclusively present as a, a weaponized means to further demonize and further discredit the presence of Muslims and the problems that they allegedly pose. And there I, you know, I, I go on a little detour towards the war on terror, the securitizing logics, and a kind of wider geopolitical and almost orientalist legacy. So that's one way in which I see the liberal falling into the nationalist form, particularly around the idea of the Muslim or the kind, the, the, the inner, what shall we say, the pathological other that the Muslim increasingly represents in the wider gaze. So this is people like David Cameron talking about a, a muscular liberalism. Yeah, the muscular liberalism, exactly. French laissez and, and so on. Precisely. So all these other themes are entirely insincere and false theatricality around the idea of free speech. Mm. And so, you know, and Gavin Titley and many others have written very well around this. And also, you know, as as uh, Gargi Bhattacharya, Sarah Faris, all of them speak about femo-nationalism, homo-nationalism, just be poor. So th- that's a, quite a, a, a different cluster, which I don't think translates that easily into this idea of the Romaniacs, so to speak, mm. and the kind of nationalisms they too might be circulating. But what I will say, actually, now that you've posed the question, it is interesting that the one fault line about the EU 
or the referendum. The one thing that is readily seen, the one red line, shall we say, that is readily seen as non-negotiable is the end to free movement. And so with all the other machinations and discoursing around what we can keep and what we shouldn't keep and what's feasible, what isn't, so a regulatory alignment, customs union, maybe, you know, some mm. elements of the, the Norway model or the, and so on and so forth, you know, we're living in an era of extraordinary jargon. But I see very little being said about free movement. And I think Richard Seymour mentioned, mentioned it the other day in one of his consistently excellent pieces. That's, even the, even the kind of labor left has been struggling to speak on free movement as the one thing that might also be worth defending. And actually, that would align itself in a, on a much more confrontational position about what actually won Brexit. Mm. And I think that it is quite telling, the silence that has prevailed. And in that sense, yes, I think the, the liberal pivot, if you like, the center-left pivot around the EU has been also equally discouraging because it fails to address the referendum on the, on the terrain where it was most significant. To the extent that there is defence of free movement on, on the sort of, not the traditional left per se, but rather a kind of more liberal orientation, to what extent is that free from nationalism and sort of civilizational position? I see entirely what you're saying. I think Daniel Trilling had an excellent piece I don't know all the detail, but there is some new position that has emerged within the EU apparatchik structure, or rather a new role has been added to an existing role, and it's something like the defense of European, the European way of life. I think that is the formal title. I mean, beggars belief, but I, I do believe that's how it's been phrased. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, I, they, they withdrew the, uh, the, that specific form of language, oh, but, that, but that's, okay. what it, that's what it was initially uh, right. being posited okay. as. Yeah. But, but it's an interesting little telling impulse at the very least, even mm. if subsequent to, to retraction later. It's a telling impulse. And of course, I mean, I don't think anyone can write seriously about anti-nationalism, particularly for my tradition, kind of anti-racist post-colonial tradition, and not also speak of the EU as being hitched to so many bordering frontier-making you know, imperatives. And equally, the idea of Europe is never a comforting one for us. You know, the idea of Europe has so many civilizationist carnage at its, you know, that it has to rely upon or willfully deny or efface. And that's, of course, very, very troubling. Having said that, the principle of free movement, even if it be within Europe, is still interesting. Mm. That is still a check on nation state xenophobias and chauvinisms. And in that sense, I think it's it is a given that any of us interested in that kind of politics would continue to defend it. And also, I mean, if I'm to speak a little more personally, you know, I was given asylum in, well, I was owing to my father, but I was given status in Sweden, citizenship status in, in uh, 2005. And what's important there is actually the right to family reunification that upheld my, you know, gave me that option, so to speak, mm. allowed me to secure Swedish citizenship. And that is actually, in, in, from a British perspective, much more firmly enshrined in, within EU regulations than it is within British law. And it's things like that. So there are also effects on people not from Europe in the course of withdrawing from Europe. Whilst I do not want to be seen as an apologist for Europe, certainly not. And I, I think anyone who will read the book will see how, in many senses, the EU too is, it responds to very similar, very similar issues mm. or very similar drives. Yeah, I mean, I suppose around freedom of movement, I guess there's a question of, of whether one 
wishes to defend it in order to try and pursue a project, whether viable or not, to further break down borders beyond the frontiers of Europe, or whether one sees it as part of a nation-making project in terms of Europe. And and, Mm. and this goes back, obviously, to to the founding of Europe and the creation of economies of scale and, you know, economic, political formation that could compete with the United States and, and, and Japan at the time yeah. and, and so on. No, I think that's perfectly fair. And that suspicion is something we should retain. But I think that suspicion will only be fully valid if the EU did in fact become the state. So I think we can kind of postpone the critical faculties to a certain extent. And for now, it still poses a certain complication to the idea of the nation state and the nationalism that otherwise prevail in its constitutive member states or, you know, representative mm. entities. But I agree. I entirely agree. And yes, I think there's everything to say that we that could have happened in a different kind of history. And then we would it would be incumbent on all of us to hold it to the same amount of critical scrutiny. Yeah. So, so going back to the way nationalism suffuses the political field, you have two chapters in the book. You have a chapter on, on conservatism and a mm. chapter on, on neoliberalism. And you're very careful to disentangle these two concepts, although yes. obviously not wishing to claim that in practice they're not highly entwined. So why do you seek to, to talk about these political ideologies separately? I'm so glad you've asked that because I, I've had, as, uh, as is of course very gratifying, I've had a lot of good responses, a positive a positive, gratifying response to the book. Mm. But what's interesting is no, no one seems to have mentioned anything about that conservatism chapter. Mm. And I suspect people do enjoy it, but they don't think it's that relevant. And I can understand that. But for me, it is fundamentally important because, as you know, it's called the clamor of nationalism. Another word I might have used is the cacophony of nationalism. And for me, it's that dizzying, multiplying sense of nationalist siege where it comes at the subject and the kind of, it offers the subject a, sense, a series of sense-making invitations through different ideological gambits, so that it works through so many different symbolic, affective, but also rationalizing frameworks. Mm. And this, in the book, I, can, I had to opt for some structures, so it was, you know, the liberal, the conservative, the neoliberal, and the left. But what was interesting for me is that the writing on the right tends to be strangely prone to framing it exhaustively as neoliberal, which is quite remarkable because kind of, <laughs> I think anyone who is familiar with it, people who might consider themselves conservative or encounter cultural interfaces that are evidently conservative, also notice many other keys that are not reconcilable to a simple kind of neoliberal calculus. For me, it was really nice, helpful to disentangle the two because I actually could establish therein two very different nationalist invitations. For me, the conservative forms felt really mournful, almost maudlin. You know, and of course, Paul Gilroy speaks on this authoritatively and form- canonically, really, in After Empire. But this, the psychoanalysis of that conservative nostalgia, what he calls the melancholia, the sense of the lost idyll or the prematurely squandered past. How else might we think about this? You know, it's interesting, for instance, that Roger Scruton, I mean, difficult as he is and cantankerous as he is, but one of his more maudlin books is called An Elegy. I think it's An Elegy for England, right? So something along those lines. Whilst the neoliberal for me is much more muscular, much more confident, much more, quite literally, economistic, 
and it's all about the kind of buccaneering spirit of enterprise and kind of vetting immigration along what Will Davis calls measurements of human capital or a human capital index, something along those lines. And so it's actually quite swashbuckling. It has a certain clip and rhythm and purpose and urgency to it. Whilst it's even shiny, I think, in some of his ideas about the future that awaits us. Mm. Whilst the conservative, I think, is entirely about a almost pathological mourning. And that does a very different work when it comes to nationalism. And for me, nationalisms and I guess all ideologies, really, I mean, or all kind of overdetermined processes speak across this melange, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this, it speaks across this repertoire of feelings and meanings. So it's both mournful, it desires something that is lost, and uh, uh, parallel to that, it can be extremely confident and spirited about the future. In terms of that, that melancholia that you speak of, that seems to be about a desire for an imagined moment in history where Britain was was white and that was at the same time of as, as sort of the apogee of the of the empire. But there's also, it seems, a, a, a new point to this. There's a certain anti-capitalist feeling associated yes. with this form of conservatism, right? A certain sort of romantic, anti-commercial spirit which is completely alien to the uh, the neoliberal tradition, right? Mm. I, I'm so glad I've actually neglected to mention that's, of course, crucial to the argument I was trying to make there. Mm. I think it is does them a disservice, if you like, to read them always as do, doing the bidding of some kind of broader neoliberal purpose. And in fact, you often find the closer you read some of the popular writers, the closer one reads, it's actually, yeah, it rails against some of the development projects that we, infrastructural projects, some of the kind of cheapening effects of what we would otherwise understand as commercial modernity. Some of the hooks or the motifs that it uses, a certain, I would say, insincere, disingenuous claim to Christianity, but a claim nonetheless, a claim to the rustic and the rural, the claim to a certain kind of heritage, a certain idea of Churchillism, which I use quite for an extended tract in that chapter, around the figure of the soldier. And of course, you know, I, I know it's kind of over-egged at the moment, but, you know, some of my reading of the poppy and uh, things of that sort, how the army recruits and so forth, very little of that is easily reconciled to what we would accept as a baseline definition of neoliberalism. And so it does reach for a different value index, I would say, and it actually gives nationalism a really rich repertoire that has very little to do with a formal neoliberalism. Now, that is not to say that, as you rightly prefaced this question, that's not to say that the political paymasters who command the project of conservatism aren't actually also neoliberal. Mm. That's quite a different thing. But I'm talking about how, you know, the, the, the polity or how certain values land in the body politic. And that's quite different to what the agents of the state or, or the party politics might be ultimately attempting to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose one example might be the alliance between the conservative Christian right, uh, neoconservatives in the United States, for instance. Absolutely right. I, I think, you know, actually, a very generative piece for me was Wendy Brown. And I think it's an undoing the demos, but she also a standalone article on this about the unholy or unlikely convergences between what she, in, within the American context, what she calls neoconservatism and what we and she also calls neoliberalism. And yes, I think there are these overlaps and they're made to marry with each other for various reasons of party political leadership or, you know, the imperative of capital or even just for political expediency. 
But as value structures and as sentiments, as desires, as dreams that are circulating the everyday amongst the polity, I do think they do quite different work. And that's why it helps me make my broader, it contributes to my broader argument about a quite contradictory nationalism and nationalism. So that's why I, I think I keep using the term like overdetermined or mm, something on those yeah. lines. And it's precisely that. They're not necessarily reconcilable, but the, it makes sense on multiple fronts, mm. the nationalist closure, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that more sort of romantic nationalist conservative position, um, mm. is that sort of, you know, drawing on quite an old heritage in the sense that to some extent this you know this goes back to the to the the birth of capitalism and a sort of a horror of the commercial but from a sort of elitist yeah. aristocratic position and 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 a and a disdain for, for for mass commercial culture. Oh absolutely I do use some of those readings but I think what's interesting is what was initially held up as rather elitist arguments have clearly been recycled into slightly different places mm. though its core impulse might still be elitist. So obviously we see people like E.P. Thompson issue his canonical critique of any mention of the word the masses. I think, well, how does he put it? No one is ever in the masses. They only observe the masses. <laughs> Something along those lines. Yes, of course, there's always been that elitist, elitist uh, provenance to this kind of disassociation from the cheapening tendencies of commercial modernity or commercial capitalism. But I think for me, that's only one streak. I think at one point in the chapter, I've listed five or six different forms. But sometimes it's elitist, sometimes it's Christianist, sometimes it's pastoral, sometimes it's militaristic, sometimes it's, um, you know, it, it, it connects to slightly different right-wing s- political consolidations around gender and the family mm. and, and things of that sort. But what is interesting, you know, you know, for instance, the Christianity theme, I find it curious in Italy how, how Salvini is on, is on the warpath with... with uh, with the Vatican. But equally, we see Bannon and them have very strong links with one flank of the Vatican. And they're almost staging a prox- their own battles that have a proxy version within Catholicism at the moment, which between people like Cardinal Burke, I believe, and then, of course, the wing represented by Pope Francis. So it, it is interesting. They make claims on things that are not always available to them, so to speak. Mm. So it is more about what it means in the popular common sense or the kind of wider symbolisms that have endured around some of these motifs, but they don't necessarily always align with the people who are, uh, who are maybe associated with these institutions or traditions. And I mean, in, in terms of conservative political practice, a very common critique that one sees of, of conservatives is this sort of, well, you call yourselves conservatives, but actually <laughs> you're happy to sign up for all these kind of disruptive political policies, which, you know, disrupt the families and, and dislocate communities and all, the, all this kind of business. And it seems to me that, that your position would be this is, this is really a, a, a pretty ineffectual form of critique because the conservative project is not and has never been of that, of that nature. Is, is that right? That's absolutely right. So I, I think I had a slightly playful take on Oakshot's um, hallowed analogy. It has a reasonably elegant phrasing, which is essentially about that there is no purpose in this world. We have no direction that is preordained. Mm. And all we can do to remain on even keel in these treacherous waters is reference to tradition. Mm. And that's what keeps us going and keeps us afloat. And what's interesting is I think uh, it is so disingenuous, this kind of conceit. Why? Because in many instances, conservatism reaches for tradition, not as a 
a, a picture of tradition, not as a project of continuity, but as a project of violent and urgent recovery. So it often reaches for con the, the, this specter of tradition to denounce the present yeah. as some kind of being horribly unmoored. And I think that's actually the mooring is a play on Oakshot as well. But yeah, this, this horribly, dr dramatically, dramatic unmooring of the presence. So it actually can rally very, very radical, very violent procedures of what they would consider recovery. I should add, of course, as a sociologist or anyone, you know, any of any of us of a critical disposition, there is no ready-made sense of tradition. You know, mm. you know it is an entirely uh, pictured, manufactured, contrived thesis. And of course, that often any notion of tradition works us very much back into the politics of nation. And I think Hobbesborn and Ranger have that famous title, the invention of tradition and as being central to almost all nation-making projects. And so when the conservative becomes particularly alert or anxious, they reach back for that mythologized sense of national community and they're in the tradition that it is, that it comprises. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.